August. We're only a few days from springtime officially now. It's nice to see the weather up in the 60s again this morning. It's uh, That cold wind yesterday was a little much, but it's sure nice today. It's supposed to be all week, I understand. I guess this is the night we spring forward. Probably all aware of that. You set your clocks forward uh, an hour. So we'll have more time in the evening for daylight and less time in the morning. I wish they'd just leave it alone, but okay. Well, this will be an important week. We have Purim coming up, and we'll have some singing and finger foods and so on on the first, as as it begins, Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock right here, and then the same Wednesday evening at 7, we'll have a more formal meal. Uh, look forward to this time, which pictures deliverance for Israel, or Judah, really more specifically, by God, and we speak of the church more uh, in terms of being Judah or the spiritual Jews as opposed to just Israelite straight. So anyway, it's a very important time for us to consider that we are in the clutches of Babylon and Satan's system today and uh, slated for death by Satan and those whom he's guiding and leading into his way, and uh, that death is pretty well sure for all of us, unless God intervenes. And that's the way it was back in Esther's day when Purim was instituted and God did deliver them, made a way for them to uh, overcome those who would have killed them all. And we're headed for the same place. As I've said many times in Revelation 12, when Satan is cast down for the last time and not allowed to accuse us anymore before God, uh, we're the ones he's coming after. He will immediately pursue the church because he knows who they are and where they are and where the light and the spirit of God is. And God will prevent him killing us, but he will kill a lot, and I think we'll see that today. There was an interesting comment by the Secretary of Energy of the United States this week. In a speech, she said that 70% of you, speaking of Americans, 70% of you will be happy to support the war in Ukraine with $10 gasoline. And I had to laugh. Where did she get that poll? <laughs> 70% of us are going to be happy to see $10 gas. We can run a poll here. How many are going to be happy to see $10 gas? Oh, man, look at the arms waving. That's already up to, see, diesel, I think, was $5.89 in Canab uh, two days ago. Uh, so it's headed there, and it's already approaching $9 for gasoline in the L.A. Basin. So what she was really saying, you know, when you, when you listen to these politicians, she says, 70% of you will be happy to support the war in Ukraine. Now, I'm not happy to support that on any basis, 
nor am I happy to support it with $10 gasoline. But what the woman was actually saying is, we're going to raise it to $10, and you're going to have it that way, like it or not. That's what she was saying. And they're very quickly headed toward that. Now, she might achieve her goal as energy secretary of $10 gas, and she might not. It may only get up to 960 <laughs> But they are doing this deliberately. Uh, I think it should be becoming obvious to Americans at some point that, and it is even in Washington now, it's beginning to stir a lot of trouble, even among some Democrats, who say, why don't you open up and we'll pump our own oil? But no, if you want the nation to go down, then you do this. It's what you do. And that's one of the things I've been watching for now quite a few years is the petrodollar or the American reserve currency. And I've said for years, when that is destroyed, that's the end of the United States. And there have been those who did try to bypass the U.S. as the reserve currency. People named Gaddafi, who died, and people named Saddam Hussein, who died, and others who have died when they tried to get around the U.S. dollar. And now, Russia and China have been making deals between themselves and with other countries to bypass it now for several years. And they have not really fully achieved it, but now the U.S. government is forcing them to bypass the U.S. dollar. In other words, the people in Washington are doing their level best to destroy this country, its money, its currency, uh, its food, and everything that we have enjoyed in this country. And they are getting very, very close to bringing it all down. Now, all the nations, there are 140 now, who are starting to use means other than the U.S. dollar to trade on the worldwide market. And they're using a lot of them, the Chinese system that they have been setting up for several years to bypass the U.S. dollar. And what that means, if people don't understand, is that now for all these decades since they instituted it, we have been able to print money as much as we want, as often as we want, because other countries had to have the dollar to trade on the world scene. And now that that is coming to a very screeching halt right now today, they won't have to need U.S. dollars anymore. They won't want U.S. dollars anymore. And the U.S. dollar is done. And so is our economy, and so is the economy of the whole world. They're going to come out with a digital currency, uh, and already have in China, and it's going to spread, and the U.S. dollar will be worthless. We'll throw it in the streets. That's what Zephaniah 1 tells us will happen. So we've been waiting, watching for these things to occur, and now they're happening before our very eyes. The price of food is going up dramatically, and it's going to only get worse and worse. It's not going to settle back now. 
now with fertilizer unavailable and countries keeping their crops for themselves instead of selling them to the world market. There are going to be hundreds of millions of people starved to death very shortly. And a lot of them are going to be in this country. So it's sad to see, but it's what God said. You know, I, I was musing on that a little this morning. Albert Pike, who was 33rd degree Mason, said in 1871, I believe the year was, uh, that we'd have three world wars. And he predicted who would be in World War One. He predicted who would be in World War Two. And he predicted who would be in World War Three. So this so-called conspiracy goes back a long way, and even before Albert Pike, quite a way before Albert Pike. And they've been that Satan has known what God said all this time, and he has been preparing to do the things that the book says he will do and that man will do. Now, it's kind of scary if you think these people behind the scenes know what they're going to do. They did it in World War I. They did it in World War II. And now World War III is upon us and chasing up very, very rapidly, just as he said it would. So, that's kind of scary that these people would know that far ahead of time how this would shake out. Now, I find it even scarier that God knew a long time before they did, two, three thousand years ago, he wrote it down in this book and told us exactly what would be happening today, and it is. So he knew a long time before the people of this world did. So did Satan. I hope we realize that this is not a Christian nation, nor has it been for a long, long time. Now, you and I were taught in school, most of us here are old enough to have been taught, that democracy is the finest form of government that has ever existed. And that's an absolute, outright lie. Democracy is not a godly government whatsoever. Is God's kingdom going to be ruled from the bottom up? For all those people to vote on what the laws will be, on what they'll do? No. It's from God down. And that's the way it will be, because God is righteous, and he can rule righteously, and everybody will have the things they should have. Now, Satan believes in government from the top down as well. He just believes he should be at the top. But he is corrupt and evil to the core, and when he is in charge, we have nothing but evil. And... Dictators by men have been a bad form of government because dictators are evil and mean and selfish. That is what human nature is. Now you might say democracy, if 
man is ruling man without God around is better than satanic dictators. Because in democracy, there's a certain amount of check and balance, although there, well, there used to be. There isn't anymore, because we're not living in a democracy or a republic anymore. The people at the bottom have no say. The people in Washington say it all. And they get their way so far. And will. But this nation was not founded by Christians. Do we, we were taught that all our lives. This nation was founded by Christians. No, it wasn't. George Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, all those men we've looked to in our history books were not Christians and said so. They were deists. And by definition, a deist is someone who believes there was a God who made things and then he retired. He went away to do his own thing and just left us to our own devices. That's what our founding fathers believed. And Washington was a mason, as were most of the founding fathers. And that is why, to this day, this isn't a theory, this isn't a conspiracy, Washington, D.C. is laid out in absolute Masonic order. The streets, everything, are laid out Masonically because our founding fathers were Masons and Deists. Now, let's understand a broad picture here. That when Israel went down into Mitzrayim, or we call it Egypt, here, they were not slaves. The family of Jacob and his sons, Jacob was renamed Israel, and his sons would become the tribes. So it was right at the beginning of Israel. Joseph was one of those sons who had been sold into Mitzrayim. And there was a drought, a famine. So Jacob went down to his son, didn't know it was his son at the time, went down to Mitzrayim or Egypt to get food, and then he moved down there when he found out Joseph was there. And it took time for slavery to really be enacted upon them. Joseph was in favor, and he died. And another Pharaoh came along, and pretty soon those Jacobites, Israelites, began to worship the gods of Egypt, and were not godly at all. In fact, when Moses told them, well, God's going to deliver you, they said, which one? Is it going to be the crocodile, or the fish, or the fly? Which God is it that's going to save us? Because they didn't know the true God anymore. Their slavery had gotten very onerous. Now, did they deserve to be delivered from that? No, not at all. They were living just as pagan as the people around them. But God, because he had promised Abraham that he would make a great nation, he fulfilled his promise to Abraham 
by bringing them out of there and setting them up as a nation. They've begun small with just the sons of Jacob. And in Egypt, they had become very large, and they had become then a nation. Several million people. So he delivered all of them and showed his mighty power and his mighty hand. Now, in one sense, and I think it's a great sense, you can say that God took away the autonomy, the leadership of Jacob, and turned it over to Mitzrayim for 430 years. They were in those hands. And then they were released from that. Now, we have a nation that began just a little over 430 years ago when the first permanent colony of, of occurred in Virginia, Roanoke. And that ended in 2017. But we had been given the opportunity to come back to this land where God had taken us away by ship into the Middle East, Northern Africa, Eastern Europe, and then eventually... Israelites migrated to Western Europe. From there, God permitted them to come back here, where we had started. And he gave us 430 years back that we had had before. Now, that is an abject or object lesson for us, that he, gave, he took away 430 years, we went into paganism during that time, and only he could deliver us. What an incredible lesson. And you had the Red Sea and all that to show the mighty power of God. Now, he says, I'm going to give you that 430 back. I'm going to put you back in the promised land where you started. And I'm going to let you build a godly society and world. I'll give you 430 years. And that's what Ezekiel did. He laid on his side for 430 years, each day as a year, picturing Judah and Israel. That prophecy has now come to fruition and is finished. In God passed judgment in 2017 when that eclipse went over the middle of our nation at noon just like Amos said it would. And now the shoe is dropping and we're beginning to feel the weight of it. We're beginning to feel the boots, if you will, dropping. Because our freedoms are being taken very, very quickly away. This is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is ruled by the whim of those in Washington as they see fit. And they've made executive orders so they can do anything they want to. Now, when we first came here, the first few settlements, people brought the Sabbath. They brought the holy days with them, particularly in Rhode Island and a few other places a little bit. They were quickly shouted down in our founding fathers' formulated a Roman-Greek combination republic with Masonic layout of our capital. 
Maybe that's the seed of Satan. <laughs> Set up by Satan, by his minions. We've had great respect for Washington, Jefferson, and Franklin. They weren't Christians. They weren't followers of God. They used somewhat of the laws of the Bible that were in, written into Old English law, but they also put in there a Greek and Roman form of government and form of architecture all over that city, as well as the street layout. So we didn't last long here like we didn't last long in Mithraeum until we went into the slavery of Satan's Babylonian government and became the center of Babylon. We are the world rulers of Babylon. We're the woman of Revelation 17, the great whore of the earth, who's been riding the leaders of this earth, and they hate the whore, and they're going to burn her with fire. And God says, come out from her, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. That's the United States of America. Or was. It's the disunited States of America now. And becoming that way more and more every day that goes by. This is not going to end well for us. God said long, long ago, a company of nations would come against Israel particularly uh, Ephraim as the firstborn, as us, and destroy us. And they are making plans right now to do that very thing. They're destroying our economy and our dollar as we sit here today. And you're going to see the price of food go way, way, way up, and then you're going to see it go away. And gasoline the same way because they're going to use energy to do it. They said a long time ago, Kissinger's repeated it. Well, he was one of our beloved politicians. You control people by the control of energy. Our nations, I mean. And you control people with food. So they are destroying our nation through the use of energy, and they're taking away the food from the people, and we'll get complete and total control of them, because you won't eat, buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast. It's already been instituted in the form of COVID, and it's taking a greater and greater hold now. And it's going to become so powerful that you can't do anything without it unless you're a true follower of God. Now, last week, we saw in Zechariah 10, uh, and this has been the theme from Zechariah 1 on, and in Haggai as well, that God is going to draw out the repentant, faithful few, a 10% remnant, of people who were called into the church. And chapter 10 tells them to ask of God the former and latter rain, at the time of the latter rain, springtime, uh, for his blessings. And then he shows that he is going to make his people, his little bitty remnant of a church, to be a very, very powerful people. And that 
Egypt and Assyria will not be able to do anything against them. Now, he says the same thing in Isaiah 7. I've been through it several times, but he says that the Assyrian will come into your land, O Emmanuel, God with us. He tells us he's going to come and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2, 1 and 2. No, in 2, actually. And it'll be his land, Emmanuel's land, God with us. That's what it says there in Isaiah 7. And he says that the Assyrian will spread over the land and even get to the neck. The neck geographically describes that area of the true Jerusalem with a sea on either side and a neck of land out into it. And he's going, the Assyrian will come that far. And of course, Daniel tells us that he will take over Jerusalem and the temple for a short time during the times of the Gentiles. But he says God's people, his church, his little flock, will be spared. When he does come in and overflow, they will flee to Zion and he will take over Jerusalem and the promised land. But prior to that, Christ is going to be a wall of fire around the area so that the temple in Jerusalem can be built. Then he will allow them to come in and take over and his people protected. So that's what he's talking. When the Assyrian comes into the land, you'll be protected. Ask for his blessings to come. That's what he promises those who repent out of the spewing of Revelation 3. Now let's go on down to chapter 11 then with that background and understand this is still talking primarily to the church. This one has been in some ways a bit of an enigma, but what it really amounts to is he's already told us in the preceding chapters that he is going to take care of his people. Now, there's one in there, chapter 5 of Zechariah, that we just recently went through, which showed the worldwide would be taken by unclean birds and placed back in Babylon, which is what the Tagaches did with the church. And the people would be judged by the law of God, which Tagaches said was done away with. And the liars and thieves and so on, those who are breaking the law of God, would be judged by it. But he said he, they would set it up on its own base in Babylon, which is what they did. <clears throat> they took the money, they sold the buildings, and dropped the church in Babylon, where God said he would drop a lead weight in that basket of the church to silence it, to shut it up. And when they got into Babylon, they've pretty well been quiet ever since. Haven't been able to do a thing. They thought they were going to go back into evangelical Christianity and become a big thing. That's what they thought they were going to become. How'd that work out for them? They're gone. Dead. So with that background now, let's understand chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Now, the cedars of Lebanon are mentioned in Scripture, and the original Lebanon was here in the southwest. And there are cedars here in the southwest. Some of the oldest living things on earth are on top of Cedar Mountain. The, what's the kind of cedar? The name won't come to me. Uh, goes way back. 
Did somebody say it? Oh, oh yeah, the uh, bristlecone pine. It's not a cedar as such. But there are cedars up there. Now, Lebanon means white. And we know that God is going to protect his people in the secret places of the stairs. That's where Christ says he's going to meet them in the Song of Songs. And we've come to understand that there is a geological stair step here in this area. Red mountains, above them white mountains, and above them pink mountains. So it's a geological stair step. The word Lebanon means white. The second step up is white. And you see a lot of white uh, in the uh, Valley of Zion today. Actually, the staircase national monument, or not just a monument, but the landform goes from the Hurricane Fault Line over to the Cox Comb about halfway from here to Page, where you have this red, white, and pink. So it is within that area that Christ is going to meet his bride in Zion. And the elevation creates a lot of white in the valley of Zion today. Uh, red below it and some part in it, and then the pink is higher than that. So it's kind of right in the middle is where Zion is today. So... Uh, He's speaking symbolically here of this original land, and the Assyrian is coming in here. We're going to take over. We can be protected if we do what we should. But he says, and Lebanon in that sense, I think, means the whole promised land. Remember, when, when uh, God set it up originally, he said the, it would be from the salt sea to the uh, waters of strife. That's from the Great Salt Lake down to uh, the, the rapids of the Colorado River. So he gave the dimensions, and they fit back then. And then he said later he would expand the promised land from that original small area to include the whole continent. And he's done so. Brought us back here and gave us the whole land. So that's been done. So when it speaks of Lebanon and its cedars, it's speaking really of the whole land because it is the whole land that God is judging. And when the church started, it reached from shore to shore. It reached into other shores. It went around the world to the Gentile nations. But the promised land is just the North American continent, primarily Canada in the USA. You might include Mexico, because those people are a mixture of Israelites and other races, and were originally here. This is where they came from. It was the original promised land. The Hopis and the Navajos understand that. They know southern Utah is their place of origin. So did the Aztecs and the Mayans. They understood that. And there are people on earth today in governments around the world who know that as well. Columbus had maps of North America when he came. 
and he was flying the, uh, where's the word, uh, flag of the people had gone from France to here and had known where the treasures were. And he was coming here looking for them. So, in a sense, it's the whole country now that God gave us back. And it's the whole country that he has under judgment, and it's the whole church that he has under judgment. So he says, open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. He's pronouncing here a judgment of trouble, which we'll see as we go through. And he's saying, you might as well just open your doors, because it's coming regardless. Now, when there's trouble coming, which is what he describes right after he says that, when there's trouble coming, usually you'll want to shut your doors. And here he says, don't bother to shut them. It won't do you a bit of good. Open your doors, and it'll happen. Now, what will happen? That the fire may devour your cedars. Now, why would you open your doors to that? Well, you wouldn't, except that this is a challenge right here. God is saying it won't do you any good to try to stop what's about to happen. So you might as well just say, okay, go ahead. That the fire may devour your cedars. In biblical prophecy, cedars can be, or trees, can be churches. They can be individual people. I think we'll see this as speaking of churches here. Devour your trees, your churches, your congregations, your churches. How fir tree, where the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. How you oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. Now, forest of the vintage is what? When you make wine, you have a certain year that it was fermented. It's called that vintage year. And when God began working with Herbert Armstrong to begin the end-time Church of God, there's a vintage. <laughs> it has aged over time. And then uh, the bottle was broken, if you will. So this is kind of mixing metaphors here, but <clears throat> these large trees will come down. Now, I, I speculated a bit on this. I don't know that it is a true speculation, but I think it could be, because it mentions three here. And after Worldwide came apart and disappeared into Protestantism, there were three main branches of it are trees that sprung up would be Living, United, and uh, Philadelphia. So three main ones. There have been hundreds of smaller groups of 1 to 15 to 20 or 50 or 100 people or even maybe a 1,000 or two. Uh, there have been some a little larger, but those were the three biggest that came out right away. So it might be referring to them. Now, he's already told us before this 
that he's going to take the 10% remnant that repents and protect and help them. So what he's dealing with here is the rest of them. And I think we'll see that story develop as we go through this chapter. He's dealing with the rest of the church. All right, if you're going to take 10% out, protect them and use them to do the end time work, what happens to the rest? That's the question I think he is answering in this chapter. There is the voice of the howling of the shepherds. So this equates it to the church. He, he mentioned trees, three large ones, and then the howling of the shepherds. So in this instance, the symbolism of the trees probably is churches, not individual people. And their shepherds are the ministry. <clears throat> For their glory is spoiled. The voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. So they went out with high hopes from worldwide when they did decide that they had to get away from it, which they did. They started up their own groups. And the shepherds thought they were leading them in the right direction. But primarily all they were trying to do was recreate what God had just viewed out. Let's rebuild Worldwide Church of God. That was their goal, and that appealed to more people than anything that anyone else said. Because the church was the church. And if, if it's been destroyed, then we need to fix it, make it like it was. <clears throat> and that's what they set out to do. Well, God didn't like it like it was. He didn't like them the way they were. He didn't like me the way I was. He didn't like you the way you were. He didn't like anybody the way they were. So he spilled the whole thing out. And said, repent. Now some are. But most aren't. That's the problem. Because they took the view that they were okay. They took the view of what he had just described in Zechariah 3, is we're okay. I'm going to lead you, the shepherd said, in the right direction. But they didn't. And God was not happy. He tried to remake them into what they had just been, and they settled down comfortably. Oh, I'll see they're united because they're still teaching what we heard. But they weren't repenting. The leaders of United in Philadelphia and living didn't think they needed to repent because each and every one of them, whichever of the groups they were in, thought they were the Philadelphians and everybody else was the problem. And when everybody else is the problem and you're not, you don't have to repent. So nobody is much. Individuals here and there are. And God knows where they are, and he's going to stir them to come and build his temple in Jerusalem. Has to be done. But the rest have not repented. And in their own mouths, from their own words, they said, we don't need to because we're Philadelphia. We are going to continue doing the work. So they started making broadcasts and printing booklets and trying to do a work which has not happened. 
A lot of people went into those groups. And you know what? The ones coming in were almost trampled by the ones coming back out. Because it was in and out, in and out. We've seen it. We've experienced it. Going from one to another to another to another. And not finding what we needed to find anywhere. Because it wasn't there. So he says there's the voice of the howling of the shepherds. Because it's all coming apart. They're being torn down. United Living and Philadelphia will not exist, nor will any of the others, smaller or like them. They pack, I don't know how big he got, not as big as them, I don't think. It doesn't matter. None of them did what they needed to do. They just assumed they were okay, which is exactly the opposite of what Christ said to do in Revelation 3. What's wrong with admitting you weren't right and you need to repent and then go do it? What's what's wrong with that? Except nobody wants to think that they're the problem. Well, I'll tell you right here now. You were the problem. I was the problem. I thought it was a bigger problem than any of you. And I had to say, I'm not what I should be, and I need to change it. And then working on it, we still have a long way to go. I pray every day for forgiveness and mercy and grace, because I fall so far short of being what God is. It doesn't matter what other people in the church or the churches are, or where they are in repentance. It doesn't matter, because I can't compare myself to them. You can't compare yourselves among yourselves. It isn't wise, which means it's foolish. We can only compare ourselves to the Father and the Son, and therefore we have to ask for forgiveness every day and try to do better the next day, because we always, through the course of a day, fall short in some way or another in idolatry and all the other laws because we put ourselves ahead of God in some form or fashion. We just do. So there's going to be a voice of the howling of the shepherds for their glory is spoiled. Those glorious churches they established are going to go away. The pride of Jordan is spoiled. Jordan River uh, is another symbol of where God should be. The people have ignored him. That's the problem. Thus says the Eternal, my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. So we've seen the church already spiritually pretty well slaughtered, right? Ezekiel 5 has been fulfilled in it. I've said it a thousand times. A third of us died of spiritual famine and disease. A third were taken back into the captivity of the world or killed by the sword, spiritually speaking. There's only going to be about 10% left that repent and are faithful. So, 
the voice of the shepherds is going away, and there's a need to feed the flock of the slaughter, but their preachers don't know what to preach and don't know what to do. So they're going down and out. Feed the flock of the slaughter needs to be done. Whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. But the Cotches did that. They slew a lot of people spiritually by telling them, hey, it's okay to eat unclean. It's okay to keep Sunday. You don't need the holy days. Christmas and Easter are godly. On and on it went. And they killed them off spiritually. And they didn't hold themselves guilty. They thought they were doing it in righteousness. And they that sell them say, blessed be the eternal. So the ministers who are not leading the people to the right conclusions and to repentance and turning to God, sell them back to the devil and society and Babylon around them. And say, blessed be the Lord. They think they're doing it in the name of God, but they're not. They sell the church off and think they do it in righteousness. For I am rich. Whoops, there's Revelation 3. What about the ones I just named? They're saying they're Philadelphians, that they're rich and increased in goods. And they brag about how many articles or how many broadcasts they have, how many people they have. It means nothing. Because it's not done in righteousness. It's done in their own vanity and ego. Their own shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Eternal. He says, okay, I've put up with this. Now it's been destroyed pretty much spiritually already. And now we're at the point where the nation itself is going to be destroyed, just like the church was. And this chapter transforms into that and shows what those, when God's people are stirred, the faithful ones come back to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. The rest will be left out in the world, and they will suffer the same fate as the world. And this chapter is beginning to show how it's not just spiritual destruction, but they will also receive physical destruction. Because their own shepherds don't show the kind of pity that they should show and help them to turn to God instead of just turning to our new rendition of worldwide, which is basically apart from God. About him and pity the inhabitants of the land, says the eternal, but lo, I will deliver the men, every one to his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. Jeremiah tells us there will be civil war in the land, neighbor against neighbor, if you will, and it says there will be violence in the land, ruler against ruler. So we're going to have senators and people on that level in Washington killing each other, governors, whoever. We're going to have civil war. It says it right here. And they shall smite the land. And out of their hand I will not deliver them. So God is going to allow this to happen to these churches of God. I put that in quotes in a way. 
They have been churches of God, but they're not repentant, and they still think they're okay. We're still rich and increased, we have people, and we're doing the work. No, they're not. They don't even know what the work is. I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of the slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. So he says, I'm going to let them go into captivity, into difficulty, into death. But I, God speaking, will feed the flock of the slaughter. That which is left of the slaughter that has occurred spiritually and is now starting to occur physically in the next months, year or two. Even you, O poor of the flock, what are we supposed to be? Poor in spirit, humble, meek, obedient, righteous. Those are the ones, the poor of the flock. Those who consider themselves poor. Didn't Christ tell us to be that way? To be poor in spirit? Instead of rich? in our assessment of ourselves. You should not consider yourself righteous. You should not consider yourself okay. I have it made because I'm one of those that's close to God. I'm trying to be righteous, aren't you? I try daily to be better than I was yesterday. I try not to make the same mistakes over and over again, but we do. And God said, don't consider yourself righteous. Isn't that what he's saying in Revelation 3? You say you are. You're rich and increased with goods and you're fine. Because you're keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and you're being nice to your neighbor sometimes. And you're Okay. And he says, I spew you out because you're not okay. You're not righteous. Find true righteousness, he says, not self-righteousness, which is what we were. When you consider yourself okay and rich in righteousness, you're showing that you aren't and need to change and repent and find true riches. That's what we all have to do. So God says he's going to feed the poor of the flock. Those who consider that they are in need spiritually. Now we might have God's spirit, but that doesn't mean we're rich, if you will. It means we have the basis of righteousness. But we still, if you want to measure complete righteousness, only the Father and the Son have that. So every one of us falls far short of that, and we're working toward that. I'm not working to be as righteous as you are. You're not working to be as righteous as I am. We're all working to be righteous as God is righteous. That's the only standard we have. If we measure ourselves among ourselves, we'll come up with wrong conclusions, because we're all far short of righteousness. So we can't compare ourselves. Now that's why I wanted to emphasize here, those who consider themselves righteous, God says they aren't. They're the Philadelphians, they say. 
No, they're not. And I wanted to make it sure that you and I understand we aren't either. We are skewed and we are repenting and trying to be like God and Christ and are falling far short of it. Now, if you have that view of yourself, that motivates you to change so that you can be like God. I want to live with him forever and ever. And his creation tells me that. When I look at the beautiful things God has made here, the animals, the birds, the trees, the grass, the sky, the sun, the moon, the, the water, the beauty that God has made here, I want to be with him always. I don't want to be with these polluters of the earth who have been destroying it before our very eyes. Revelation even says, Woe to them that pollute the earth. The green movement isn't all bad. It's gotten way out of balance, yes. But to preserve what God gave us and address and to keep it and keep it in the right state, there's nothing wrong with that. But then they get to where they worship the earth itself instead of God, and there's all kinds of problems I don't have time to go through again today. But God says, he'll feed the flock of the slaughter, even you poor of the flock. So, the first thing here is to recognize that we don't have enough of the Spirit of God. It's not that we don't have the Spirit of God, we do, but we don't have enough. We don't have his spirit as he has it and as Christ has it. And that's our goal, is to be more like him, so that we can live with him throughout eternity. So, recognizing our spiritual poverty is what is necessary in order to gain true righteousness. Instead of vain self-assessment as being okay. So, he says, I'll feed you, poor of the flock, and I took to me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Now, beauty and bands means grace and unity. That's what those two words mean in the Hebrew, grace and unity. Now, he tells us in Haggai, speaking of that remnant that come together to build, that he will bring peace in this place. Unity, peace, everybody seeing things together, doing things together. And he tells us there that he will use the two sons of oil, the two witnesses, to feed that flock that he brings together and stirs to come, and they will be fed properly. He shows us there in Zechariah 4 that they will be the ones he uses to feed the flock. He uses human instruments a lot. Always has. So they will bring unity under Christ, through Christ, and they will be given grace in the wilderness, as Revelation, I mean, as Isaiah 41 tells us. Be given grace in the wilderness. So he's going to call those two men to teach the ones who come to build the temple and to bring 
his grace, his mercy upon them, and to provide unity. That's how he's going to do it. So he called them grace and unity, and I fed the flock. Then he says in verse 8, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now these are ministers, shepherds. We saw three trees that will be cut down, and the shepherds would howl at the beginning of this chapter. Then he shows that he's going to show no more pity on them, but he will feed the poor of the flock, that remnant which comes out. And he tells us how he will do it in Zechariah 4. But three shepherds he cuts off. Now, is that the leadership of United Philadelphia and uh, living? I don't know. That's speculation. I, that may be the way this shapes up. And it might be a little bit different. I don't know. But that's what we're seeing out there. That's what we're looking at in the church at the moment. And we know that only that faithful remnant, and they're going to come from everywhere. They won't be from one group. It won't be one group that comes. It will be people, individuals, scattered throughout the spewing who repent. They're the ones he'll bring. They're the ones he'll be. Then said I, I will not feed you, these three shepherds, these three churches. That that dies, let it die. I'm not going to save it. I'm not going to take care of it. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest, everyone, uh, eat everyone the flesh of another. They chew on each other. They eat each other up. They compete with each other. And they're going to be taken down and destroyed. Now, it may be the three that are typical of the rest, but it doesn't matter whether it's a church of one or ten or twenty or a hundred. Uh, the same fate occurs to all, except the remnant that Christ is going to call. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So God had made a covenant with the whole church, had he not? We made a baptism agreement or covenant with him that we would obey and follow him. And he made it with the whole church, with all those that were called. He accepted them. And he made it with all the people. Then because of our lack of true spirituality, he spewed us all out. So, he cut aside the grace and the unity that we had in worldwide. He cast it asunder. He ended that covenant. Now, he did the same with ancient Israel because of their whoring around with other nations. He divorced her or broke the marriage contract, they're the ones that actually broke the contract. He's the one who called it off and declared it a divorce. Now, we're the ones who broke the contract with him that we had made at baptism, 
and he spewed us out and let us lay. So he's taken grace, his grace, away from the church as a whole. He's taken unity from the church as a whole. It's totally disunified today and is not living under the grace of God. And is about to die. He says, no, not protected. That which dies, let it die. And when this nation goes under, that 90% of the church that's left behind is going to die. Be martyred. If they have any of the Spirit of God at all, Satan sees the light. He knows where they are, and he'll make sure they are martyrs. It'll happen. So he's going to give grace and beauty through his leadership under Christ to the remnant and feed the poor little flock. The rest, he took grace and unity from it, the 90%. So I broke the covenant made with all the people, and it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the eternal. <clears throat> Those who are made humble, who are made meek, who are made to understand their spiritual poverty and turn to God, will see what God has done to the church as a whole. They'll recognize it. And they'll flee from it to the wilderness and receive grace and unity there. So God has destroyed grace and unity, but he's going to bring it back to a 10% minority. <clears throat> And I said to them, here's the ones, the poor of the flock, that looked to God, that waited on him. I said to them, so he's talking to the small group now, the remnant. If you think good, give me my price. And if not, forget about it. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Now that's what we sold Christ out for. We blame it on a few Jews. But I sold him out. I was created and born on this earth to live as the Father and the Son live. But like Adam and Eve, I sinned. Like Adam and Eve, who represent all of mankind, we all sinned. So something has to be done. And Christ, we all killed by our sins. He did not die to forgive Judas and a few people who literally killed him. He died for all of mankind, and the price they paid was 30 shekels of silver, or pieces of silver. So he's telling us here is the poor remnant to consider his price to accept him as the answer. Those that wait upon the Lord, it just said. Those who are willing to accept the price of his death for our forgiveness and follow him. Those are the ones he will take care of. We have to accept, in other words, that we are responsible for his death. He died for you. He died for me. 
He died for those people who watched him die. He died for all people from Adam and Eve down through the millennium all the way. His sacrifice is for everyone if they will accept it. So he tells us, you I called out. You I made a covenant, a contract of marriage with. Now are you going to accept the terms of this and be my slave? Be my servant? Be my brother? Be my friend? Be my bride? Are you going to shoulder this responsibility and take it and run with it? If you are, wonderful. If you're not willing to pay the price and trust me in faith to take care of you through what's coming right now, today, on this nation, in increasing severity every day. If you're not willing to take it on and trust me to take care of you, that's what he tells us in Isaiah 8. Don't fear this new world order that's coming. Don't fear the beast and the false prophet. Fear me. Look to me. I am your healer. Don't look to Pharmacaea to save you. Those wizards that peep and mutter, he says in Isaiah 8, Revelation, he says they'll be deceived by Pharmacaea. Don't go to them. Don't go to the bad doctors. Go to God. Are you willing to say, He died for me? His word says, If any be sick among you, let him call the elders of the church and anoint them with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. An anointing means nothing unless there's faith with it and trust that it's actually going to happen. Don't go to the satanic system that Satan is using. He's using medical science today to deceive the whole world into worshiping the beast. And Christ is saying, this is the point you're at. Don't go there. Come to me. Accept the responsibility. Accept what I did for you. And live by it. And I will protect you. We can't serve God and man or God and Satan. You only have one master. Look to him. We have been trained, most of us, a lot of us, all our lives. If you get a sniffle, run to the doctor. If you get this, run to the doctor. If you get that, run to the doctor. I don't go to the doctor. I grew up in the 50s in the church where they said, be anointed and you'll be healed, like James says. And you know what? It happened. It happened to me. It happened to my brothers and sisters. It happened to my cousins. It happened through the church. There were some incredible healings that occurred. Some less incredible, but still healings. And as we began to have less and less faith, Anointing didn't do much good because it wasn't accompanied by a prayer of faith. Trust. I'll give, the, I'll give God two weeks, then I'm going to the doctor. Think he's going to buy that philosophy? 
Are you going to buy into that offer? You got a week, Lord. Then I'm going to go somebody, somebody that might again fix me. You know what my belief is? And I hope I never go against it. My belief is if I get really sick, I have a God who created me. I have a God who has healed me in the past, who's healed my children. The first person I ever anointed after I was ordained was one of my nieces, and she was healed immediately of a very serious problem. And I have that to look back on. My first child would have died in childbirth and probably his mother too, except that God committed or performed an absolute miracle, and I heard something pop, and out he came. After the midwives had given up. 38 hours or whatever it was. I've seen those things, brethren. I know there's a God. I know that I can trust Him. I also know there's a time to die. And God has preserved my life and that of my family and others that I've known for a lot of years. And if I get cancer or heart trouble or diabetes or whatever it is, I don't intend to go to the doctor for it. If God chooses to heal me, he will. If he says it's time for you to die, then I will die. And it's okay. Because if I die in faith, I'll be in the kingdom of God tomorrow. If I don't die in faith, then I have a problem. I'm not saying you should never go to somebody who might help you with certain things. But he said Asa died because he went to the doctors instead of to God. Right there in the scripture. Would you rather be obeying God and die in faith or going to the doctors and dying in the hospital and trusting them to save you? If you die there, you know what they do? They ship you off to get buried or, or burned. That's all they can do. Now, if we die in the faith, we get buried also. But we have the resurrection to look forward to. When Christ comes, will he find faith on the earth? That is a big question he asks. you find me on the floor half dead, don't you dare take me to the hospital. Because if I can find a gun, you're going to, I'll probably go to hell for murder. Don't want to go there. Don't intend to go there. Now, if I break an arm, I'll go find somebody to set it. I don't have a problem because they're not trying to heal me. They're just trying to straighten something out. And I think that there is a middle thing there where it's good to have people who are trained to, to do certain things. But it's not good for them to take it way beyond and play God and take Christ's job. Now, I can't tell you where that line is. That's something that you determine between you and God and what you intend to trust him with, 
and what you think maybe somebody else ought to handle. So there's no clear-cut definition of that, and God made that on purpose. But what he really wants is us to trust him in every way we can and get the 30 pieces of silver work. So he speaks to the little flock that waits on him and said, consider my price, pay the price, and waiting on me will pan out for you. So the Lord said to me, cast it to the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the eternal. Why to the potter? Christ is the potter, we're the clay. So he said, I have this people who have been trusting in me, who are humble, who are meek, and I'm going to work with them. I'm going to shape them. Now he said up here above, he was going to bring beauty and unity back to us, to the small group, not the big one. So here he's talking to the poor little flock that is left and saying, pay my price and I will shape you into God. Then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, Take unto you the instruments of a foolish shepherd. So he's, he's breaking then all unity, not only in the church, but in the land. Because that's where the physical deaths are going to begin to come. And the, this unity in this country is, as we speak, being broken. We're very divided. We could go nowhere and do anything in tandem. Can't agree upon anything. So that brotherhood, God has broken. And it's coming apart at the seams. So the context here is of the two witnesses and the remnant that are going to come together they will recognize the value of Christ, and the rest are going to be left with the beast and the false prophet and Satan to kill. So he said, take you the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up the shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Uh, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that stands still. <laughs> but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Now this could have represented, perhaps, and in type did, uh, the leadership of Worldwide that took over after Herbert Armstrong died, and they led us back in and tore us apart. But it could, in a greater sense, and I think that might be the case here, be referring to the false prophet that is about to arise, and they're not going to care about anybody. They want to kill 90% of the people on earth, and they want Americans to be all killed, so the Chinese and others can come in and 
take over the land. So here's somebody who doesn't care about the people. Are there any people in Washington, D.C., and among the Rothschilds and the uh, Rockefellers and the Roth, uh, the uh, J.P. Morgans, the city banks of the world that care? No, they don't care. The beast and the false prophet won't care about little people. So he's not going to take care of people. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. Now the word idle here in the Hebrew means good for nothing, or vain, or impious, or perverse. So here's somebody who takes over who is all those things. And that was uh, spiritually in type with the Gosh Bunch. And now it is going to be the end time beast and false prophet who aren't part of God's people at all. Woe to the worthless shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So he won't be able to see anything. He will have no power. Doesn't he tell us that the two witnesses are going to go against the beast and the false prophet and be able to pronounce plagues and destroy anyone who tries to stop them and they'll be helpless against them? Yeah, that's what the book of Revelation and Daniel say very clearly. So their power will be dried up. And then the book of Revelation also says when it's all said and done, He's going to take the beast and the false prophet by the nap of the neck and throw them into the fire. So, ultimately, I think that these last few verses are speaking of those two, or especially of the, the false prophet, the shepherd. Maybe not the beast himself, the political side, but the, but the religious side. Because they have no value placed on Christ. See how he did that? He said... You little ones who have been trying to obey me and are poor in spirit and humble and meek, recognize my value to you. The 30 pieces of silver was given for us. He was given for us. So he tells them, look to me. And then he turns around and says he's what he's going to do to the others who will not do that. Both the church and the physical nation. So I hope that gives us a little better view, an idea of what is happening to the rest of the church. He'll say down in the next chapter here that some will repent. But let's don't get too far ahead of the story today. Save that for next week.